Special times for sure. Do you guys remember your baptism? <laughs> you know, it's fun when uh, kids that have grown up in the church get baptized. Um, we're glad to see that sense of children of promise continuing down generation to generation. One of the conversations that's always come up, it came up in our house and certainly probably in, in yours as well as you've had kids come to faith, the question becomes, how old should they be before they get baptized? And we have a paper on that in the Welcome Center. You know, if your kids are old enough to believe and they know that, uh, we say if you're old enough to believe and that next step of faith is obedience, that's a good time to do it. So when our children were little too, we would put them off a year or two. We would challenge their faith, ask them questions. And when we were sure they were firm in it, then we, we told them, well, this is a step of obedience. This is what you need to do. So it's a great encouragement to see kids that have grown up here following in the faith. Hey, with that, let me pray, and we'll get into the message. Father, thanks for new life. Uh, no one can give it but you. Uh, Lord, we are born from our parents. We're born in sin, Scripture says, dead in trespass, and it's only your spirit applying to us the work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection that gives new life. Uh, we thank you for that. And Lord, we ask that new life not only would continue to grow in Micah and Colton, but Lord, that our testimonies of faith and your faithfulness, we would continue to see others coming to faith and life in Jesus Christ. Pray that. And also ask, Lord, just this morning that you'd help each of us get words of life you mean for us from our scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I want to start with some famous last words this morning. Uh, Union Army General John Sedgwick said this just before he was killed by a Confederate sniper. He said they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> True. True. In his defense, he was actually quite a brave guy. He'd escaped death. He'd been wounded. And at this point in a battle, he was trying to, to gear the guys up to face the enemy. And he'd been shot at multiple times already. But he was on his horse rallying the troops, trying to get them to be willing to continue to confront the enemy. Uh, this is the epitaph on the gravestone of British comedian Spike Milligan. He said, I told you I was ill. This one, many of you will know, let's roll. Uh, those were the last words heard by Todd Beamer over a telephone as he and others tried to regain control of Flight 93 on 9-11. These weren't quite the last words of John Newton, but close enough to count. He said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. If you were to be known by last words, if your life was winding down and you were to be known or remembered by last words, your last words, what might they be? What might you like to be remembered for your last words? If you knew your death was imminent, that your life's winding down, you're not going to be here, but people you know and love and care about remain here. If you were able to speak to them in person, if you were able to write them a letter, what kinds of things would you want to say to leave behind 
reminders, memories for their benefit in your absence? What kinds of things might you want to speak as your last words? At Joshua 24, Scripture has numerous examples of last words. Joshua 24 is probably one of the most famous. Verses 14 and 15, you remember it was Joshua who replaced Moses. Moses led Israel to the land of promise out of Egypt, but couldn't take them in. That was for Joshua. You remember his name is the same as Jesus. Joshua would lead them into the land of promise. And he really was a general over the armies of Israel. And if you think about his life, they cross the River Jordan. They go in. They face the tall, walled cities. They face the giants. They face multiple armies singly and together. And when Joshua's life is winding down, they've basically taken over most, not all, of the land of promise. So he knows his death is soon, and he's looking at a new generation following them. And what does that next generation need to hear? So he says this, Fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river, that would be the Euphrates, going way back in their history, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. He basically says, don't be double-minded. Don't waste your life and your time being double-minded. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua's charge, his last words are basically, make up your mind. You know, get with the program one way or another. We're going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That was his encouragement, his exhortation to that next generation. At David's to Solomon last words, this is 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through 4, less well known. But the setting, you remember, David as the shepherd king, David as a young boy, as a youth, he had already fought lions and bears and then a giant. So from his youth, this was a guy who was living outdoors, living big as a, as a man. But that's not true of Solomon. The, the son that God has told David is going to replace him as king after David's death. And Solomon's grown up in the court. And he knows nothing of the kind of upbringing that David had. He had faced none of the kinds of temptations and challenges that David had. And so David's last words to Solomon are basically charging him to grow up and be a man. He says this, Be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Keep His statutes and His commandments, His rules and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. In fact, he goes on, and not just for David's benefit, but for Israel's, for the nations, it's in that context that he goes on and reminds Solomon that God had promised if your heirs that sit on this throne will be faithful, you'll never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Of course, that would not hold true in Israel's future, would it? But that was the charge. I'm leaving, and I know who you are, and I know what you're like. You need to grow up and be a man to lead God's people. Here's another example. This is Acts 20, a little closer to home, verses 28 through 31. These are Paul's words. And this is not, in fact, the end of his life, but it's the last time he will see face-to-face -face the elders from the church at Ephesus. And he knows that. The Holy Spirit has told him, you know, you're, you're to go back to Jerusalem and you're going to be arrested there. You're going to be imprisoned. It's ultimately going to lead to your death. 
And so Paul tells these guys, hey, I'm not going to see you again. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. This will be the last time I see you. So he's speaking to the group of men who lead the church at Ephesus for the last time. He says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, God's church, not yours, which he obtained with his own blood, costly, Christ's church, bought with Christ's blood. Therefore be alert, verse 31 and verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So here Paul, remember he was the guy that planted those churches. Here are the elders overseeing the church in his absence after he's gone in space and then later in time saying, God has appointed you the guys to lead this church, and it's God's flock, and it's bought with Christ's blood. He's elevating the importance of their role. And he says, you guys be alert to yourself. I'm commending you to God and the word of his grace. We'll probably look at this later when we're in 2 Peter 2, but Paul warns this group of men, from among yourselves vicious wolves will arise to draw men after yourselves. He's warning them ahead of time the costly role that they're in and the dangers that lurk ahead for them. So Paul's addressing that, his last words to those leaders. This is the third message in the series titled, Be Diligent. This is our study through Second Peter. And this morning we see the ways in which Peter was determined to be diligent before he passed out of this earth so that believers he'd previously written to in modern-day Turkey would be prepared to face their future faithfully, as faithfully as Peter could help them be prepared to do so. I love this. So you remember he told them in the last two messages, first two in the series, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we, we focused on the truth that Peter, Second Peter was calling Christians to Christ-like transformation. That was the big theme. And that they were to be diligent about that. But we also pointed out that Peter said he also was going to be intentionally diligent and he's being intentionally diligent about his last words to these same believers. So if you have your Bible, we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. By the way, before we get in, the lesson itself is a little shorter than normal this morning. I won't run long. The, but the end of this, what we'll have in, in lieu of, uh, of more verses and more emphasis is actually an exercise. So I hope... You picked up a bulletin on your way in. If you didn't, pick one up on your way home because there's an exercise that we'll close with. I don't think you'll have time to finish this morning, but I would strongly encourage you to do so later. So that's where we'll wind down. So a little shorter in the text. So 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, Peter continues, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Those were those seven Christ-like virtues or characteristics we already looked at in verses 5 through 11. He says, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort, and again, New American Standard translates that, I will be diligent. It's that same Greek word, spudzatso. I will be diligent so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter's diligence here facing the end of his life is to remind them of some key thoughts. That's where we'll start. 
Look at verse 12. He says, I'll always remind you of those Christ-like characteristics, those metrics that we looked at before. You remember Peter says, if you have these and they're increasing, you won't be unfruitful in Christ's name and cause. You'll be fruitful. But if you lack these qualities, you remember he said, it's like you're spiritually blind and dull. So he's already reminded them of that. And that verse says, though you already know them. I'm reminding you, he says, of what you already know. Verse 13, as long as I can, he says, I'll stir you up with reminders. In the Greek, that means I'm going to make you rise up again regarding these truths. I'm going to wake you up again with this call, with the things that you've already heard and known. Verse 15, he says, I'm diligent now so you can remember these truths later after my departure. And though we're not in the text, if you look at 2 Peter 3, verse 1, the same theme, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's the same language as here in verse 13. So he says, I'm diligent to remind you about things you've already heard. Now, commentator Michael Green says this, and I think it's a great point. He points out, he thinks that Peter is looking back at his own life and that he's recalling the night of Jesus' suffering when he had assured Jesus that if everyone else falls away from you and denies you, don't worry, I've got your back, I'm there for you. And you remember Jesus says, well, you know, not quite, because you'll deny me three times tonight. But you remember, this is out of Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Jesus tells Peter, he says, basically, don't worry, I've prayed for you. So you are going to fall down spiritually, but you're not going to fail. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are restored, when you've repented and got up and you're in right relationship with me again, he says, then you go and you strengthen your brothers because they'll have fallen down too. So Green thinks, and I agree with him, that as Peter's looking at the end of his life, he's still doing the same thing Jesus prayed he would decades earlier. That, and if you remember in verse 10, he said, if these qualities are yours, they'll keep you from falling down, from failing in, in your spiritual race of life. So Green thinks it's the same thing going on, that he remembers Jesus' prayer from decades earlier, strengthen your brothers because they're going to have fallen. And he's writing to people, he says, you don't have to fall down. And he's strengthening believers so that they can run with endurance the race set before them. I heartily agree with Green. I think that's in the back of his mind. Uh, being reminded of truths we already know, verse 12, you know the things I'm writing to you is not a needless exercise. You know, if I came up to you and told you 10 times the same thing, and you might say, Mike, I heard you the first time. Well, what you find in Scripture as we keep hearing the same things over and over again, and that's not a mere formality. It's a great necessity. If you look at Paul, Paul called on Timothy and Titus to remind those they had spiritual oversight and care for, to remind them in 2 Timothy 2.14, essential elements of the gospel, Titus 3, verse 1, the call to submission to authorities. Those on the island of Crete that Titus was responsible for were, were known for uh, ungodly living, a lack of appropriate authority. Jude, verse 5, 
I want to remind you, he wrote, although you once fully knew it, and goes on to talk about the gospel. So this thought of reminding people of truths they have already heard, this is part and parcel of the scriptural testimony, Old Testament and New Testament. We've looked at this before in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a book that highlights remembering, looking back, having testimonies that remind you over and over again of the same truths. That's what Peter is doing here. Listen to this. I I happen to have read this just this last week. I thought it was outstanding. This was from Kevin DeYoung in an August 24th Gospel Coalition blog. It's titled, The World is Catechizing Us Whether We Realize It or Not. And this is the frame of reference DeYoung was writing from. He said, basically, I was watching the Olympics as much as I could. You know, they just ended, I suppose, a couple weeks ago. He and his family, he's watching the Olympics often as he can. And he said he realizes something as he's watching the Olympic competition itself and then he's subjected to the advertisements in between all those. He said, you know, I realized that what the Bible calls immorality that is typically now called alternative lifestyles was being celebrated and pushed and put forth and premiered both in the games themselves. I think it was a male who was lifting weights as a female. And then in the advertisements, the liberated, I don't remember if it's lesbian, homosexuals, whatever, in commercials to, for you to buy a sandwich. His point was, I realize I and my family were being bombarded with these messages about what God calls, what the Scripture calls immorality. He said this, with that background. It's worth remembering David Wells' famous definition, worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Here's the reality facing every Christian in the West. The money, power, and prestige of the mainstream media, big-time sports, big business, big tech, and almost all the institutions of education and entertainment are invested in making sin look normal. Make no mistake, no matter how good your church, no matter how strong your family, no matter how gospel-centered your Christian school or homeschool, if your children and grandchildren are even remotely engaged with contemporary culture, pause, and they are, they are being taught by a thousand memes and messages every week to pay homage to the rainbow flag. Now that's the point, isn't it? I mean, if we were left to our self, we would still be confronted day in and day out by our own sinful tendencies. That's challenge enough for me. But guys, we're in a wash in a world that we are just subjugated. We are under this influence day in, day out, and never more fully than now through electronics, through social media, through television. You know, we are being bombarded by messages all over the place. And the world's messages coming to us are opposed to Christ. They're opposed to the gospel. They're opposed to the knowledge of God. So DeYoung's point is, you can't help but reinforce yourself, your kids, your grandkids. He mentioned children and grandchildren. This applies to adults equally as it does them. Their minds may be more in a formative setting or stage. This applies to all of us that if we aren't being reminded of those basic gospel truths and facts, guys, you're, you're losing them slowly because we're drinking the water everybody else is drinking. 
And, and if that's not confronted by the truth of Scripture and God's Word, don't deceive yourself. Let's not be stupid by thinking we're wise. We're not wiser than that. We're not wiser than Peter or Jude or Paul or Jesus on the need to be reminded of these truths. Peter says, I'm reminding you of what you've already known, already heard, and I'm going to tell it to you again so that you can't lose it, that you can't lose the value of that knowledge. We memorize Scripture. We meet with the Lord in His Word. We meet together here and in home groups in part, in part, only in part, but a significant part, to remind ourselves of what's true so we don't lose it. Absolute necessity. There are numerous truths we can never hear too often. I remember I heard an old brother in the faith decades ago, and he said we never get beyond the basics. And what he meant wasn't that we don't grow in the faith, we don't grow, Second Peter will wind down say, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying we don't grow. He just says the basics, the foundations you come back to constantly, you can't get away from them. You shouldn't get away from them. Our sin and our need for a Savior. God's grace in giving us Christ. The reality of our full acceptance as God's children. The certainty, and Peter's going to take us in this, this lane of knowledge later, the certainty of a final judgment and a new heaven and new earth. That's a big one. The certainty of a future judgment and a new heaven and new earth. So Peter was diligent in reminding Jesus' followers of truth they needed to rehearse and recall so they didn't lose it. So they didn't become just like the world around them because that's the default. Guys, we said this was a message a long time ago in this church. We talked about life as a stream. And you know the only thing that goes upstream is something that's alive. The dead things, they just flow downstream with the stream. The flotsam and jetsam and the dead fish. And if you're spiritually alive, you're swimming upstream against the flow of the world. And if you're not going against the flow of the world, you're just being carried along with it. Don't fool ourselves on this. It's a given. Now look at verse 14. Peter's diligent reminding of his friends was in the context of his impending departure in death. Verse 14, he says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now you remember John 21 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Peter had grown up and fished. Jesus says, hey, by the way, there's a time, there's a day in the future where men are going to lead you where you do not want to go. And that's how your life's going to end. But it appears here Jesus had told him, well, it's coming. It's almost here. So Peter knows this is his last opportunity to communicate with them. And I want to point out a couple things in this section. When he says, my body, he's using a Greek term that's not used very often. It's skenoma, and it means a tent. He says, I'm going to be leaving my tent behind. The normal Greek term for body would be soma. But put that in context. Peter's told us in 1 Peter, and he's reiterated at least as shadows in 2 Peter, that we are sojourners, we are aliens in a foreign land. We're like people who put up a pup tent, but we don't have a house here. You know, Philippians, Paul talks about it. We're citizens of heaven. We're representatives of heaven, but this is not our home. Well, Peter uses a term that makes that very intentional. He says, I'm a sojourner on the earth, 
and I'm going to put off my tent. And that's a great perspective also. We'll mention Paul here in just a second. But it's the thought, Peter says, I'm going to put off the temporary to gain the eternal. I'm going to end sojourning the land that's not my home to go to heaven with Christ where that is my home. So he's very intentional. He's sort of subsidizing that whole narrative of earth is not our home. Don't act like it's your home. It's not. And your body, think of it as a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. You're going to get a better one. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.1, and he uses a word from the same root family. We know that if the tent, the skena, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So I'm going to get rid of my tent. I'm going to get a building. I'm going to leave my inglorious corruptible for a glorious incorruptible body with Christ in heaven, my true home. You look at verse 15, another interesting thing just on the word choice Peter has in this passage. He says, after my departure. He doesn't say after I die. He says after my departure. In the Greek, the term is exodus. After my exodus. That's an interesting choice of words too, isn't it? I wonder where Peter might have heard that. Death as an exodus. So if you look at Luke 9.31, when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on that mountain and Moses and Elijah met with him, it says, and they were talking to him about his, and I can't remember if this is ESV or NASB or both, his departure, his departure. But in the Greek, it's his exodus. So when Jesus' impending death was right before him, they were talking about his exodus. And that's the same term that Peter uses for his own upcoming death. It's an exodus. It's a departure from one form of life into another. And of course, for Jesus, the exodus is death that leads to resurrection, that leads back to heaven and glory. And if you go back further, though the Hebrew doesn't use the term exodus for the book of Exodus, because that was for the Greek version of that book of the Old Testament, yet still it's the imagery of Israel leaving a place of slavery and going into the promised land of milk and honey, that was their exodus. So in both cases, the term Peter uses would put them in mind that I'm leaving something temporary for something better. I'm leaving a place of sin and death for a place of glory. That's the thought. That's Peter's mindset as he thinks about that going forward. So... He's diligent. He's reminding of things they already had heard, they already knew, and he's framing it in the reference of his own impending exodus. I'm going to leave, and I'm using my last opportunities to remind you of some things so that in my absence, you'll call them to mind. You'll remember them. If you go to your study sheet, if you don't already have that... Um, Peter's unique in history, and he's unique in the history of the church. You know, he's preeminent. We noted in our first lesson, he's preeminent among the apostles. He's always the first one named. He's the one that's going to restore his brothers. He's given the keys to the kingdom. He's got this unique role. So he's an apostle. He's a prophet. He's an evangelist. He was absolutely uniquely used by God. So if we look at Peter and we say, Peter was unique, and that call of his to make sure people he left behind had a reminder 
that was unique to him. And I think if we thought that, we'd be missing the mark. Because God in our own place and time, he's got us in particular sets of relationships. And in our absence, what would those relationships look like? What would the people in those relationships look like? And what would we wish we had said to them before our departure, taking Peter's role, saying, I'm not just being diligent about Christ-like transformation, but like Peter, I want to be diligent to leave behind words or a message, an exhortation or a focus on those folks that I've been in relationship with that would serve them well in my absence. What would we want our last words to be? What would we want the effect of those words to be on folks we left behind? And this is where we, we get into your exercise. If, you've, if you have that sheet, look at that now. There's three, there's actually four things, but there's three things that um, I would highly encourage you to meditate on, pray about, and then fill out. It doesn't have to be this morning, but you can start thinking about it this morning. The first is this, as concisely as possible, what would I like as my epitaph? Guys, so unless Jesus calls first, what's going to happen to all these bodies in this room? They're going to die. And our friends and family, are, uh, maybe, are going to bury them in the ground or they're going to see ashes, but there's going to be something along that line, right? When your body's buried in the cemetery and someone walks by and they see your gravestone, what would you like to be on that? Someone walks by and they see your gravestone it's sort of a living stone, right? Sort of a living memory. You could remind someone of something. What would you remind them of from the grave, as it were? What would you remind them from the grave? So, okay, we got the day you were born, the day you died. We've got your name. You might even tell us who your children were. I've seen that. What would you want as your epitaph? Here's one. This is John Newton's. He wrote it for himself. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's interesting, isn't it? So he's got before, this is what I was, God's mercy came in and saved me, and then this is what I became. Before, saved, after. It is a helpful exercise, I think. You can go through the cemeteries. Um, I don't do this as much as I used to. You know, I was raised Roman Catholic right here in Topeka. Guys, when I go to the cemetery at 10th and Westchester and I drive through those rows, I'm looking at people's names that I grew up with. I'm looking at family names I knew and interacted with for decades. And it's a reminder, well, there's so-and-so. There's my brother-in-law. There's my parents. There's Kathy's parents. There's my friend's parents. All kinds of things. So when I see those, what do I think of? If it's your gravestone, so it's got to be short, got to be small enough. Newton's gravestone was fairly tall, so he could get a bit on there. If yours and mine were short, what would they be? Our good friend Grace Robinson died several years ago, and we were responsible for, for her remains and what followed. And so on hers, it's, a, it's part of a verse out of John 11, the resurrection passage. And it ends with the question, do you believe? You know, Mary and Martha, do you believe? I'm the Christ. Do you believe? I can raise your brother from the dead. Do you believe? So somebody sees Grace's headstone, her epitaph says, do you believe? What would yours be? Think about that. With a little bit more leeway, a little bit more space to write, 
in a single sentence, what is my key mission on earth? What does God's overarching call on my life look like? This is more challenging than it sounds. Because I mean for us as an individual Christian. So we might say, uh, we might quote somebody's, uh, to know Christ and to make him known. Okay, well, that's a good one. And we might say, well, that applies to every Christian. To love God and to love others. Okay, well, that's, that's broad. I'll, I'll give you that too. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is specific to us as an individual. This has to take into account who I am, where I am, God's spiritual gifts he's given me, the way he tends to use me. Do you get it? It has to be individual. It has to be specific. So when we read about Peter, okay, he's got this unique role. Well, that informs what he wanted to say to those folks regarding his departure. So when I think of myself here and now, the spiritual gifts, the callings, the responsibilities I have, what sentence would go to define my mission because my mission informs the kinds of things I would say to those I was leaving, last words. What's my mission? Here's an example. This is mine. And this took quite a while to come up with, by the way. A lot of thought. To invite others into more life in Christ compellingly. To invite others into more life in Christ compellingly. So it's an invitation. I can't make anyone do anything. Into more life. If they're already a Christian, can I help them enjoy more life in Christ? If they're not a Christian, can I invite them into eternal life out of death? And I want to do so compellingly. I want to be thoughtful about it. I want to be thorough about it. That's Mike. So as I look at my call in life, that's, that's one of my key lenses for me as an individual. How has God put us together? What are our spiritual gifts? What are our responsibilities? How would I sum that up in a sentence that lets me think of my unique role in God's kingdom, in the body of Christ, among my family, friends, loved ones, members of the body of Christ? What is it? What does that look like? How do I know that I'm about God's business for me specifically? What God wants for me, from me, not someone else. That's the second one. Gaining a little bit more breadth in our language and some more, some more lines on your study sheet. The third one is this. In a single paragraph, what would I want to remind others of regarding their future in faith after my departure? And on this, I'm really, I am thinking like Peter about addressing other believers. So this could be your family, this could be friends, grandkids, neighbors, the folks that are here Sunday morning, members of your home group, but you're wanting to encourage believers in their faith from the relationship you've had with them after you've passed. What kinds of things would you want to remind them of? You're diligent to remind them of something, like Peter. What would we be diligent to remind them of? Here's an example, 2 Timothy. You remember, Timothy is Paul's protege, really his key protege. Paul discipled a number of men, but Timothy was the key guy. And Paul is a firebrand, isn't he? He spread the gospel, he's been in prison. I mean, he's done the do for decades. And before he's going to die, he's in prison when he writes this. And his death won't be far off either. He's giving this last word to Timothy. And he knows something about Timothy, doesn't he? He's timid. He tends to be fearful. He tends to withdraw when he should go forward. And Paul knows, I'm going to be gone. The benefit of my gifts to the church are going to be gone. 
And I've invested in Timothy, and he has got to man up. So Paul's words to Timothy, his last words, they're bracing and they're exhortive. He says things like this, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who can teach others also. So basically, uh, Timothy, I've invested in you. You make sure you're investing in other men who will invest in other men. You're going to further that chain of discipleship. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul's writing from prison. Share in suffering. Don't, don't back away from suffering when that's what the gospel requires of you. He says, uh, verse 15 in chapter 2, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who doesn't need to be shamed, but rightly handles the word of truth. And that's sort of the, the discipline and the artistry of someone taking a block of wood or a block of stone, and they know how to lay it out and how to carve it up appropriately. He says, bring that kind of skill set to God's word. You're responsible for the doctrinal instruction of those in the church under your charge. He says, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let me pause on this one for just a minute. In, in COVID, in light of COVID and churches closing down, Hebrews 10.25 was quoted by many people as justification for the church continuing to meet, which I agreed with. Uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I agreed with it. I agreed with the use, the, the philosophy, the concept. This is another verse that says exactly the same thing. That you are called positively to continue to meet with and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This doesn't mean anyone in this room is perfect, by the way. Right? But that, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we hold in common. And he closed, semi-closed with this. Preach the word, be ready in season, out, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. That's Paul's to Timothy. Paul's role, unique relationship, Timothy, what God was calling for him. That's an example. I'm going to be gone, and this is what you need to hear. This is what I want you to recall and remember in my absence. What would we write to someone that we know, fellow believer, someone who has faith, calling them to a reminder for their future? What would our last reminders, our last words be to others as we practice Peter's kind of diligence in that vein. Now, on a totally different front, Paul is in prison, Peter's in prison, and they write, they know they're going to be executed. Guys, they have time to think. They're locked up, so they're safe from other forms of harm. They're going to lose their heads or they're going to be crucified, but they're safe from other forms of harm. So they can think about it. They can write it down. Let's just say that one of us left church today, we were in a terrible accident, and we died. Or let's say next week or next month, you're walking down the street, you have a heart attack, you drop dead. You don't have time to sit down and write a thoughtful memoir, much less a paragraph, to those you knew, loved, cared about, wanted to remind them of something in your absence. You didn't have any time for that. It doesn't happen. If your life, is the only letter you leave behind what will people have heard not a piece of paper not your thoughtful prayerful remembering on a sheet of paper if your life is your only letter if it's the only manner others have to be reminded from you what will that message be what is that message at this point this time because we've all got it 
You know, Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, you are our letter. You are known and read by all men. All of us are a letter. And other people read something about us when we interact with them by our words, by what we do, by what we don't do. All of that comes to bear. And that is, we would say briefly, that's our testimony. So when, when we die, what will the testimony that was simply our life, what will that be? What will the value of that be as a reminder to others in our absence? In our absence, what will it be? Here's a poem by William Wordsworth. It's quite short, so if you don't like literature, you don't need to cringe. This will be just a moment. Uh, William Wordsworth wrote a brief poem when a young friend of his, a young female, died. Her name was Lucy. And I, I use this one as an example because I think it's easy for us to minimize the degree to which God has placed each of us in a time and place that he means us to have an influence and an impact. So if I think of Peter, the great apostle, Paul, the great apostle, if I think of guys that I know, Christians that preach to thousands or whatever, they have a huge sphere of influence, and I say, I'm not that important, you know, I'm, I'm a house mom, you know, I, people don't, not very many people know me. I think there's a tendency to minimize God's call on us to be faithful. So listen to this from Wordsworth. He wrote, of this young lady in her absence, she dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone half hidden from the eye, fair as a star, when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be, but she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. The loss of this quiet person that most people didn't know had a huge impact on Wordsworth at least. And your departure and mine, it will have an impact on some. So what is the letter that is our life, if we don't have the opportunity to do otherwise, what is the letter that is our life that we're leaving behind as our reminder to others, what is that understood to be? You know, the Lord Jesus left no letters. I don't think we have any autographs he wrote. He didn't write his own gospels, did he? He didn't write any letters. We don't have anything that Jesus wrote as a reminder to us but he did tell us a certain way to remember him, didn't he? This is Luke twenty-two nineteen. The night before his death, he took the bread of the Passover meal. You remember that bread would be unleavened. It would show burn marks on it. It looked kind of like a scarred thing. He took the bread of that Passover meal. He gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. That you do this in the future. Not the Passover out of Egypt, but the new covenant in which I'm leading you out of death into life. Later, Matthew 26, 27 through 29 gives another emphasis. So do this and look back. Look back and remember what I did for you. My body instead of yours. My suffering for you. 
Not you. I'm taking your place. I'm the bread that's burned and scarred. Not you. Look back and remember my love for you in my crucifixion. In Matthew 26, we read this about the cup of communion or the Lord's Supper. Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the the bread, I look back on Christ's broken body and I remember his love for me and for you. And the cup, he says, I'm looking forward and I love this thought. He says, I won't do this again until I do it with you. That the next time I tip this cup, remembering the new covenant I instituted in my blood, I'll be doing it with you in my Father's kingdom that never ends. Isn't that a lovely reminder? That was his reminder to us. We're loved by God. Our sins are forgiven in the blood of the Lamb. Our sojourning days will end at a great feast in the Father's kingdom where there is fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus' reminder to us is to look back and remember his great love and is to look forward and remember where we're going and what the end of our sojourning days will be. Let me pray. If you're on the worship team, you can come up. We'll read a text in just a second. Father, help us to glorify you in the days you have gifted us on this earth. Help us to take helpful cues from Peter who looked thoughtfully at the end of his own life and wanted to leave something behind that would be a reminder to people you knew and loved and he knew and loved, Lord, that would serve them well in his absence. Lord, let the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, the work of our hands, the memories we leave behind, let them point people to you and to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, stand if you would, and let's read from Revelation 22. Verses 16 and 17, and then it skips down to verse 20. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.